Welcome to the Narrators Podcast. I'm Robert Rutherford. And I'm Andrew Orvidal. This podcast collects stories that were told at the Narrators, a monthly storytelling event that features people telling true stories based on a theme. The show takes place on the third Wednesday of every month at the Buntport Theater in Denver, Colorado. These stories were recorded live at the Deer Pile on April 17th, 2014. The theme of the evening was girls, girls, girls. And if you haven't heard the big news, the narrators is changing venues starting in May. May 21st, we move to our new home, the Bontport Theater at 717 La Pan Street. The show will still be free and is at 8 p.m. Our next storyteller, uh, he's another favorite of the show. He actually hosts uh, a sister storytelling show called Stories, Stories, Bring Your Stories. It's the fourth Tuesday of every month at the Mercury Cafe. He is, they are, they have their show next week and it's their 50th episode. Uh, so check them out. Please welcome Ed Ward. Hey, hey, hey. You know, in addition to Girls, 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 we also got April is Poetry Month. So this ties the two of those things together. And the title of this story is In My Mother's Bed. I have a blog in England. 4,000 people read this story in the last two weeks because they all thought it was porn. It's ten times more powerful than porn. It's called In My Mother's Bed. The great American poet Robert Frost was once asked, what is the most significant event, the most important thing that ever happened to you? Now, I'm sure the interviewer thought Frost's response would have something to do with his reading of the poem, The Outright Gift, at the inauguration of John F. Kennedy on January 20th, 1963, the first time ever that a poet had the honor of reading at a presidential inauguration, or Frost being selected as the Poet Laureate of the United States from 1953 to 1959, or receiving the Pulitzer Prize for Poetry four times in the years 1924, 31, 37, and 43, or receiving Yale's Bollingen Prize for Poetry in 1963, or his marriage to his high school sweetheart and co-valedictorian Eleanor White on December 19, 1895, or the births of any of his six children. Robert Frost's answer, however, had nothing to do with any of these important events and dates in his life. Rather, his answer, a road less traveled, if you will, had to do with his own birth in San Francisco on March 26th, 1874. He told the interviewer, I was born in my mother's bed. Now, I'm not sure how I came to know this odd fact. My best guess is that I heard it via a recorded interview with Frost that was broadcast on early public radio in the 70s, a decade or so after his death. Regardless, it was an indelible tidbit etched on my hard drive that I never forgot, and, would help, and which helped to inform my getting on board with my wife Marsha's decision to pursue home birth when she became pregnant in July of 1980. Our first child was born on March 27, 1981, like Frost, in its mother's bed in Denver, 107 years plus three hours after Robert Frost was born. This is the story of that birth 
and the fortunate happenstance of the five girls, 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 the midwives who assisted. Marcia and I were not exactly trying to conceive a child when we did. As with many of the important moments together in our lives, a wedding played a part in Marcia's impregnation. Indeed, our history as a couple is wedding rich. Marcia and I met as blind dates at a wedding, and we both have spent decades working as wedding professionals, Marcia as a photographer and I as a celebrant. Our own wedding in 1979 was so over-the-top personal that those in attendance still speak of the poems burned, the mushrooms we handed out, <laughs> the fact I wore no shirt, the motley tent Marcia made of sewn-together drapes that shaded her family from Wyoming and my friends in that July noontime sun in our South Pearl Street backyard and the severe frown on my father-in-law-to-be's face. <laughs> and much of what I know of spirituality and ritual has been engendered by what I've experienced at weddings. Not a particular wedding connected to our first child's conception was the wedding of my boss at the time, Tommy Larkin. He managed the Boston Half Shell, where I waited tables. Thus, it was an Irish restaurant worker wedding with more than its fair share of fine food and drink. And I do believe the alcohol offered and imbibed that day in Aspen, Colorado, played a significant role in Marcia's miscalculation of her ovulation cycle, <laughs> as we made love the night of Tommy's marriage. Nonetheless, when a month or so later, it became apparent that something was missing in Marcia's life, <laughs> the regular monthly punctuate punctuation signaling all is as it has been, that she might be pregnant. We both were ecstatic with joy at the prospect of parenthood, and we both embraced the pink color of that test strip and the confirmation of her pregnancy with an almost rabid fervor. It would seem that something I wrote in a poem after attending Tony Sabella's daughter's wedding in 1979 at weddings, a woman sometimes too will get pregnant and everybody is happy, had been prophetic. And soon Marcia and I were off in search of a midwife. Not an easy thing to do in 1980 as midwifery was generally frowned upon by most practitioners of modern medicine and not the usual choice of young married couples. Even though humans have been born without hospitals, doctors and drugs for over 200,000 years. Many of the people in our lives at the time thought we were crazy, if not irresponsible, to pursue home birth, including Marcia's parents. Marcia and I took to searching the postings of community bulletin boards in the uh, bohemian establishments we frequented, coffee houses and bookstores, and what were known then as natural food stores. Although practically everyone we knew characterized our search as foolish, dangerous, and hippy-dippy, we thought it to be wise, natural, and empowering, if you will, the road less traveled. And the midwife we soon hooked up with proved to be wise, natural, and empowering as well. Rare would be the woman who could say she had walked in her shoes. Her name was Gina, and to this day I consider us lucky to have found her because her underground network of fellow practitioners of black market midwifery was so large, 
that a curandera, that is a woman healer in Texas, her wisdom was largely responsible for solving a difficulty that presented itself during the birth of our first child. And the elderly healer never even knew our names. Marsha's labor was exceedingly long, over 30 hours, morning, noon, afternoon, evening, night, all night, into another morning. Because Gina was an on-the-down-low teacher of midwifery, as well as a practitioner, there were three other midwives assisting Gina during the first 24 hours of Marsha's labor. And a fourth arrived about 20 minutes before our child was born. Ramona, the last to arrive, in the nick of time, you might say, had just returned to Denver after months of study and training with an elderly and legendary indigenous midwife, shaman, and teacher who had been present at and assisted with the births of thousands of kids in rural Texas. Upon arrival, Ramona had telephoned Gina's house after departing the Greyhound bus on 20th Street and had been told by Gina's daughter that Gina was uh, attending a birth on Pearl Street. Informed that the birth was most likely imminent, given that Gina had already been gone from home more than 24 hours, Ramona took another bus to the number five from downtown Denver and arrived at my house with a backpack full of dirty traveling clothes and a head full of wisdoms recently learned. Still, she was quiet and calm and deferred to the more experienced and older midwives in attendance as Marsha's labor progressed. That is, until things got dangerously complicated. When my child entered the birth canal, there was a problem. Gina told us the baby wasn't breech, but its seemingly large head and shoulders were positioned in such a way that word is birth taking place in a hospital, given the duration of Marsha's labor, most attending physicians would call for a surgeon to perform a cesarean. Now, I had all the faith in the world in Marsha's determination to see things through, an immense confidence in the midwives present, but I must admit I was a little apprehensive. Worried I was about the extreme effort Marcia was putting into pushing. Concerned about her understandable exhaustion. Disturbed by the gritty and growling moans that accompanied each push. Fearful of the fluctuating information of the fetal monitoring. Anxious about the time my child was spending in the birth canal. And then, when Gina said, we might consider going to the hospital if the progress through the birth canal remained impeded much longer, the young apprentice, Ramona, offered a suggestion. Something the elderly Kirindera had only spoken of, a technique Ramona had not actually ever witnessed or tried. Marcia sat on her futon bed with her back to the wall. Gina, monitoring our child's vitals, squatted between Marcia's legs. With a midwife on either side of Marcia, Ramona, with the assistance of Fiona, Gina's primary assistant, did a handstand beside Marcia. The kind of handstand where one's feet are used to walk up the wall with one's head facing the wall. Ramona then sidestepped with her hands until she was centered over Marcia, an arm on either side of Marcia's outstretched legs. And then, as Ramona's legs walked further up the wall above Marcia's head, 
the three midwives lifted Ramona up with their hands under her upside-down shoulders and her armpits until Ramona could place her hands lightly and gingerly on Marcia's stomach, at which point she was literally doing a handstand on Marcia's fundus, although the accompanying midwives were totally supporting Ramona's weight, and there was no pressure on Marcia or our child within. After exploring the surface of Marcia's stomach like a masseuse and finding what she was looking for, our child's rump, I guessed, Ramona directed the three who were holding her up to ever so slightly let her weight come to bear on Marcia's stomach. And as the women began to let the force of Ramona's upside down weight come into play, I heard the sweetest words I've ever heard above the howl of Marcia's final moan. It's a boy. After the birth of my son, I began writing letters to my assorted governmental representatives, advocating that midwifery be legalized in Colorado. I wrote letters for 13 years. Only one politician ever wrote back, my state house representative, and he informed me that I was dangerously insane. <laughs> Every year for more than a decade, he told me the same thing. He was dead set against midwifery. And then in 1993, he wrote to thank me for my persistence as he had changed his mind and had voted to make midwifery legal in the state of Colorado. Now, I guess I should have written to thank him, but I did not. I simply burned the 13 letters wherein he informed me of my lunacy. As I am the kind of Irish who enjoys a shaman's voodoo as much as holding a grudge. On the other hand, I have been writing thank yous in the form of poems, novels, plays, and stories to Mr. Robert Frost these last 34 years, thanking him indirectly for the wisdom of his answer to the question of significance. I was born in my mother's bed. Words that have inspired me and others, Marcia, Gina, Ramona, to take the road less traveled. And this is one of those thank you, Mr. Robert Frost letters that I hope Ramona and that Texas Curandera might read one day. All right, our third storyteller, she's an editorial assistant and style blogger for the Denver Post. Uh, she is also a quiz master for Geeks Who Drink, and she is at, uh, she's out on Wednesdays, at, remind me, Francie, where do you quiz master? Nicolo's Pizza on Wednesday nights. Please welcome Francie Swidler. Can I take this off? Okay. Um, my story is very different than that. That was very beautiful, very meaningful. Um, <laughs> mine is about me getting to the airport. Um which also involves girls. It involves three very important girls. The first girl that it involves is my mother, Pearl, um, who is Jewish and, <laughs> okay, no Jewish people in the audience. Um, <laughs> usually one person is like, oh, you're like, I know what that's like, but it's, very, it's, 
it's very heavy duty. So um, this story is about me getting to the airport for Thanksgiving, and I accidentally booked my trip, my five-day trip, the week before Thanksgiving. Big mistake, worst mistake ever for a Jewish mother because it was very personal to her, very personal. Not just me being an idiot and multitasking and booking the wrong flight, but she was like, oh, well, that's fine. It's because you don't want to spend time with me. I mean, literally the worst thing ever, worse than the missing Malaysia plane, worst possible thing that I could have ever done. So... She's the first girl, so I booked my flight in the wrong weekend, but I changed it to the right weekend. The second girl that it involves, well, then there's two girls at the airport. They're actually women, but anyway, girls, 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 I just want to tie it all together in case you're missing the point. So I am taking the bus to the airport because I live in a city, and that is cool, and I'm supporting RTD, right? Yeah, and I'm telling, I'm texting everyone I know that I'm taking the bus. How are you getting there? I'm taking the bus. All right, tell my mom. She's like, that is a great idea. You should definitely take the bus. Um, I, so I'm, <laughs> thank God she's over the me booking the wrong trip. So I am getting on the bus. Let's see, my bus is like around 5 and my flight is at 7.25. So maybe is that cutting? Okay, I see you are already (laughs) thinking that was a huge mistake. But I am not checking a bag, and I am very quick at the airport. I don't like to talk to anyone. I like to be very unfriendly. I'm very, like, I don't want to deal with anything. So big mistake. I'm on the bus. I fall asleep. Um, Well, but I keep waking up. Why do I keep waking up? Two reasons. One... I know that I have to get off soon. Two, I don't have to pee. I don't have to go to the bed. I don't have to go number two, but I really have to fart this whole time. I have to fart so bad. And I'm not doing it on the bus. I'm not doing it on the bus because I'm not doing it, A, because I don't, we don't fart in front of people unless it's an accident. And B, I... Don't know what I, I think I was eating a lot of corner bakery that week, and I knew what it was gonna be like. I knew it was, and I'm doing this because I I felt like this described it. Like it was just, it wasn't gonna be like a squeaker. It was gonna be a big long. It wasn't gonna be good. So I kept waking up, I like <laughs> that, and looking at my phone. And, okay, it is 6.15. We are, like, going as slow as possible, and nobody on the bus cares. Everyone's, like, thrilled to be on the bus. I hate it now. Texting everyone I know, minus the fart part. I'm only texting girls that. And it's 6.30. Okay, still not at the airport. 6.40, not even close to the airport. 6.50, not at the airport yet. We do not get to the airport. It was supposed to get there... It was supposed to get there at a reasonable time, okay? Maybe I was cutting it too close, but whatever. We got there at 7.10, and my flight was at 7.27. So not only am I barely going to make the flight, but I really have to fart. And I fly off the bus. I have never moved faster. If there was an Iron Man recruiter somewhere near me, he'd be like, her, let's get her. She can move. So... I, like, zoom off the bus. First thing that I do is go into a bathroom. 
because I need to fart in private in the right zone to do that. So I go into, I run into the bathroom, get in the stall, slam the door, lock it, stand, and release, fart. It's like, this is actually happening. And I don't have time to text or tweet about it. I'm too busy. So, I, so there's like eight seconds, which is a long time. I get out of the bathroom, now a line has formed, and I have to like, wash my hands because I was in the bathroom. So I'm like, okay, like going through the motions, grab some towels, whatever. So I'm like running past Sbarro. I don't have to catch, you know, concourse B. So I go to Frontier and of course, what do people not do at the airport? They don't walk on the moving walkway. So that, ugh, get out of my face. I like, I, you know, I, I already wasted time in the bathroom getting that out of my system, and now everyone is moving as slow as possible. Like, it is, I, I don't know, I, like, it's like they don't have anywhere to go. Like, they just accidentally got to the airport, and they're like, oh, I, like, I'm not on a schedule. So I, and I'm the rude one. I'm the rude one. So everyone in Denver is moving slow. Oh, I'm not on a bike. How do, what, what's going on? So um, get to security. The, this man at security, fastest, faster than me, moving faster than me. He was amazing, stamping, looking, stamping, looking, saying like cool things as people walked by. And I am like, okay, like I'm gonna make this, this is gonna be good, I don't have to fart anymore. We're like ready to go. At this, by this time, it's 7.20, I have seven minutes to get to the gate. So, everything's moving fast, except for the second girl in the story who is an A-plus student in the security line and has the question, should I turn this um, this way or should it be this way? Or take the liquids out of the bag and put it there and just put it through the thing. You know, the people who are working there are working there for a reason. They will fix it, but she needed to do it herself. Like, should I turn it or like, which way would you prefer? Then this, one, this other person like leans over and she's like, that way, nope, the other way. The way you had it, the way you had it, tell her that in the beginning or just take her to the side and be like, get out of the airport, you're moving way too slow. So she eventually puts her bag in the right way or, or a way and it goes through because that is how it works. So then I get, then the genius who is working behind the screen um, is like, ma'am, is, is this your bin? And I'm like, yes, that's mine. And he's like, well, you have loose ammo in here, spare ammo. So I am from Wilmette, Illinois. And that means that uh, it's a super suburb where there are no guns ever, never shot any, barely can do well at Big Buck Hunter. So I have absolutely no loose ammo anywhere. Then I realized that it is this necklace, bullet shell necklace, okay, that I got at a cool craft fair. And I like lean over, you, you know, I like lean over to be like, oh no, it's this necklace in here. And he's like, don't touch anything. Lean, stay back. Then he like puts on, you know, the gloves, and he's like mixing his hand through my stuff. Then he like lifts it up like the tail of a mouse and is like, it, is this a necklace? Okay, I mean, is there a gun anywhere? Relax. So then a woman's like, oh no, I guess it's just a piece of jewelry. Thank you. All right, <sighs> 7.23, I have everything. No one is moving in front of me, but I find ways to get around them. So. Gate A27, no one is there. I am at the wrong gate. 
but it's not very far. It's at gate A37. So, and this is the fastest I have moved all 15 minutes that I am at the airport. I like zoom by this woman who is like one of those like people who is unsure of why she's there and like definitely stopped at It's a Wrap, wherever that is, and like has one in her hand and is like, I'm looking around. There are hundreds of signs everywhere. Like you are here to catch a plane. Where, where could that be? Okay. It could be anywhere. Like just wandering aimlessly. I go by her so fast. I don't touch her, but my (laughs) sheer velocity (laughs) makes the wrap that she is holding fly, catapult out of her hand. I didn't touch her, nothing. It just catapults out of her hand, lands like moving walkway, moving walkway here. And she's over here. And she just looks and she just goes, I'll never forget it. Just that noise, like, and I just had this vision in my head of like throwing my bag down and just lifting up the thing and punting it and being like, go get it, Sarap. But I never did that. I just yelled, I'm sorry. And <laughs> if I could change one thing, it would be that. Not, not to get to the airport on time, but it would be to do that. So I like finally get to gate A37 and basically the woman from Meet the Parents is working there. You guys know who I'm talking about who makes Ben Stiller wait? Like, she's like, he's the only person at the gate, and she's like, oh, you are zone B, and we are, you know, we're zone A, and there's no one there. Anyway, so I, like, throw my bags, and anyone in, within a 10-mile radius of me would have known that I was late for this flight. I'm sweating. I'm screaming. <laughs> I'm telling everyone my mother's Jewish, and I'm going to miss the flight. And... I'm like, I'm here! And she's like, you know, we just closed the thing, and the pilot's about, okay, I know, I know that I'm late, and the pilot is about to leave, can I get on this plane? And she's very judgmental, which is fine, okay, the one time a plane is leaving on time, and she, like, (laughs) takes the landline, and is like, well, let me see what I can do. All the power's in her hands, and she, beep, boop, beep, boop, beep, bop, bop, does this, and she's like, um, I have a girl here. What's your name? And I tell her, and she's like, her name's Francie. She's trying to get on this plane. She's very late. Up comes a adolescent who <laughs> is very concerned about his flight leaving in eight hours to Austin. And he's like, um, ma'am, I'm, I've got a question about my flight leaving, like, in 20 days to Austin. <laughs> and she, like, puts the phone down, and she's like, well, like, go ahead. I'm like... No, 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 you keep talking, sit down and wash your face. It is so greasy. I need to get on this plane now. I get through the whatever, you know, the tube, and I'm there, and you know what? There are other people in line also. It's not like everyone was waiting for me. I made the flight. I went home for Thanksgiving, and when my dad picked me up, he needed to stop three times to go to the bathroom. So I was glad to be home. Anyway, that is my story. Arrive at the airport on time. That's Francie Swidler. The Narrator's Podcast is recorded and produced by Ron Doyle. The Narrator's Podcast is brought to you by these amazing sponsors. 
The great guys at Illegal Pete's and Greater Than Records, who in addition to providing rad burritos all over town, provide great local music and comedy. Check out the appropriately named Sexy Pizza at either of their locations in Capitol Hill or Old South Pearl, or on their website, sexypizzaonline.com. And finally, by the internet superheroes at Commerce Kitchen, who provide internet marketing solutions and search engine optimization for all your e-commerce needs. Check them out at commercekitchen.com. For more information about The Narrators and to listen to past episodes, go to thenarratorspodcast.com. Thanks for listening. Yeah. <laughs> 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 <laughs>